Welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for the GC on demand, then you found the freshly rebranded Disco Posse Podcast. Go to discopossepodcast.com for details. to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host today. Don't forget to keep following along. You can go to discopossepodcast.com, get show notes, links, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And with that, let's get started. All right. Uh, welcome back. This is the uh, Green Circle On Demand podcast. Welcome to episode one. Uh, my name is Eric Wright. Uh, as you may know, I'm at Disco Posse on Twitter. I'm Disco Posse uh, here in the Green Circle community and uh, definitely very proud to be part of this very, very cool new podcast we're launching in 2016 here. Uh, it's uh, bitter cold outside in January, but it's going to be mighty warm in here thanks to the community awesomeness. Uh, very happy to have with us uh, Rob Nelson. Uh, Rob uh, is a good friend of the community uh, from, from many aspects and uh so what it is rob i'll let you introduce yourself uh tell us a bit about about you know you where uh where we can find you online and such and and then we'll kind of get started and we're going to talk a little about automation yeah hello my name is rob nelson i've been working in it for about 20 years now mostly on the operations side um but as i'm sure we'll talk about here become more of a development role these days and uh, you can find me on Twitter, rnelson0.com, my, or rnelson0, my blog, rnelson0.com, and GitHub and plenty of other places as rnelson0 as well. I love that that's, that's actually the coolest thing I hear now is more and more of our, you know, our operations folks, we, we talk about, you know, development pieces that we, we start to touch and, you know, we could, we could have, we should have a whole, we'll have you back on and with a group and we'll talk about like kind of the DevOps aspects of stuff you've done. And I love that, you know, hearing people introduce themselves and add their GitHub on there because that's kind of a cool way to do this. And, you know, so we'll talk a little bit more about that shortly, you know, and how, you know, why it's important that we have GitHub and why we have these online resources and we share this information. But, you know, let's talk about automation. You know, automation is a huge thing. I've, I'm continuing to still make a career about trying to automate more things, bring automation and orchestration uh, into the fold. And, you know, how did you, how did you get started with automation? You know, what, what was it that, that made you think, I need to do this or, or, or what was, what was the trigger? Well, I think it's probably the same as, as many people who get heavy into automation. It's just the pain of doing things manually. Um, if you've ever worked on any sort of help desk, whether it's a high level help desk or, or just picking up the phone for the most basic of, of issues that users have, uh, you always run into something that you hear like 20 times a day and it's really simple, but it takes 10 minutes of your time or it's error prone. And those are the things that, that I think everybody wants to get rid of, you know, uh, helping people change their password. You know, if you 
a lot of us have to go online and we get annoyed about these uh, you know, security questions people ask us, but that's a way to automate resetting a password instead of having to pick up a phone and call somebody. It's just as bad for the user as it is for the person who has to pick up the phone. So those were kind of things that got me started on it. It was like, how can I, how can I make my day better and make the day better of the people who are calling me? Because it's not just about me. It's about, you know, we're, we're providing a service to people, and if we make them smile because they don't even have to talk to us, that's even better. And that's a cool thing. It, we, it's a, it's not entirely altruistic. All the stuff that we do, right? It's to make our own lives better. However, you know, there's obviously a net effect of of making someone else's life better. Like we're, like you said, we're providing a service. If we can provide that service faster, you know, more consistently, and 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 easily, then it's also one step closer to to self serve. And so that's the. That's the evolution I see a lot of times. Like how how much have you found success in like, you know, you know, automating small tasks, automating big tasks, and and maybe even like going up to the point of making stuff sort of self-serviceable. What's what do you see, Rob, as like ways that people can start to look at how automation should be introduced into like daily tasks that they do? Well, I think there's a lot of different philosophies and methodologies for it but a, a common theme among among every philosophy I've seen is you know break it down into components everybody likes to look at the system where somebody clicks a button and eight million things happen like a, uh, a Rube Goldberg contraption but but good stuff comes out the end um, it, to get there you got to start with the individual components because if you push a button and nothing's attached to it, it doesn't really help anybody so break it down into the small things and you know to pick where you start Try and find those pain points. For me, it's it's usually the things that I do 20 times a day or 20 times a week, depending on, on what you have going on and the complexity. But sometimes it's also the things that you do once every year. You know, those year-end reports that people run are a great thing to automate because every year you forget what you did last year or the people that you need to talk to aren't there anymore because they moved to, on to another uh, division or another company and now you got to find who the right person is to click some button for you those are great things to automate and you, you'd really just start with that small thing and then you know maybe build a plan okay this is these are the 10 steps and step two is the most painful and then once you get down with step two then you take a look at what of the remaining nine steps what's painful and and try and put it together until you have end to end or as much as you can you know something still requires somebody to uh, to have some manual intervention, but try and make it try and make it easy easier for those manual interventions. Where instead of having to, um, you know, lo- uh, print something out and fax it to somebody, make it an online form. And that, T- tons of things that you can do at all different levels to to really help out. Yeah, and I think you you nailed a lot of cool things right there. You know, and I'm a huge advocate for, you know, theory of constraints and gold rats theories and, you know, and, and practice of how it was like you continuously, you know, find the next constraint, attack the constraint. Uh, and, and then once that's completed, you've simply just moved up to the next constraint. You're never really done. But, and you're never right. really like there's nothing wrong with being partially automated. If it's more than zero, then it's it's a bit better, right? Yeah, and, and ho- I'm sure a lot of people listening to this probably visit XKCD. There's a great one. I can't remember the number, but it's a chart that shows you know how often you do something, and then how 
how quickly you would have to automate it to pay off. You know, if you do something once a year and it takes you five minutes, you would have to get you would have to automate that task in like half a second for it to pay off. So yeah, it's that's a great one to like be manual. Exactly. Yeah, and I've 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 done it. I think uh, uh, Douglas Adams, a uh, famous writer of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he did a book called like the you know where he went around the world for like the BBC uh, and for like the World Wildlife Foundation or something, and and it was called Last Chance to See. And one thing he found was this. It was a, a like a megalopod, whatever, some kind of odd bird, and and how it made this weird nest. And it was he had worked out the the geometry and to work out the volume of the megalopod nest. And he said he spent like three hours on his Palm Pilot working out how to do what he could have done in in 15 seconds with a measuring tape. But that was like our as a system thinker, he was required to do so. Now, granted, he says he's not going to run into that situation very much. That's that once a year yeah. task, right? Yeah. But yeah, I yeah. love that. And then, and, and then, you know, the theory, the, all the, there's all the scientific stuff, but there's also the moral component of it too. You know, if you look at something and it's got a hundred steps and you're not done till we get all a hundred done, that's never going to happen. And, you know, we're, we're all going to kind of feel bad the whole time. But if you break it down into a hundred different components, you can finish one and then you can celebrate it, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, right? Is, is sort of scoping down the measurement of, of success into those small iterative tasks. And that's, that's the fundamentals of a lot of the practices we're seeing with, you know, like DevOps and all these things. It's always about, you know, system thinking and, you know, build, measure, learn. It, and it happens in the smallest iterative little pieces. And that's, we've got to start thinking that way instead of thinking like, Oh, I spent three days working on this and I only got it 25% done. I'm, I failed. You're like, no, no, you've, you've succeeded because 25% of it is fully automated. Now that's a 25% reduction in, in effort. Right. Yeah. Or on the bigger scale, you know, Oh, there's nine months till the project's done and nobody sees anything until nine months go by. Right. Yeah. You, no one gets the sense of any completion until it's like, and that's why the waterfall like project management is so disturbing to look at. Cause you're like, you're only successful once and it's really easy to not succeed. <laughs> All yeah. of that lead up task is like failed, 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 failed. You know, no one, no one measures the small bits in between. Yeah, it's all filled with uh, milestone missed and pushback and all that stuff. And and meanwhile, people are doing a great job. You just nobody feels like they are. Yeah. So I'll I'm gonna nerd out a bit, and we're gonna talk about toolkits. You know, there's tons of tools in everyone's toolkit. What's what's the Rob Nelson toolkit that you? What's your go-to way to kind of solve some of these things and and introduce automation into your day-to-day? So the way for me, if you've read my blog, this is probably no secret, is Puppet for the most part. It's a configuration management tool. And configuration management, I think, sometimes gets abused. People use it as a provisioning system, but it's really just a component of one. But what Puppet, and there's plenty of other tools that are comparable, it just happens to be my favorite, but configuration management tools give you a, here's what I want done, and the tool figures out how to do it. And for me, that's great because I work on Solaris, 
a number of Linux distributions, windows of different versions. Uh, configuration management gives me like a cross-platform way to do things. I can say install a package and give it the package name. It doesn't matter what system I'm on, it works. Nice. So I I find that fun. Plus it abstracts a lot of it too. Like Docker's big these days. Getting Docker working, uh, I have no idea how hard it really is for somebody to manually go and get it done. But for me, I just grab the Puppet Docker module and I type include Docker and a minute or two later, I've got Docker working. Yeah, yeah and that's... <laughs> That's it. Like, no, there's no no need to do the DIY basic steps. It's not it's not necessarily bad for us to go through it as admins and and developers to like take those steps. But we don't. It's good to just know and they say like, oh, but here's how you don't have to do that. Just yeah, include it. Gonna, add, add a manifest. Add a module, and life is good. Yeah, if you're going to be developing for Docker or like Docker itself, yeah, you probably need to know a little more. But if all you need to do is be the person who spins up Docker or make sure that the system is ready for other people to spin up Docker, That's it's great. It takes it all out of your hand, lets you focus on the thing that you care about, which is I now have a system I can give to somebody else that runs Docker, and your hands are washed of it at that point. And you, so, uh, yeah, the Docker, or uh, sorry, Puppet, and all the, the modules, there's like 3,800 now, I think, are a, a huge boon for me, um, really, Change, changes how I approach things entirely. Exactly. And the good thing is there's a huge community wrapped around it, right? Like Puppet itself has its own community. Each community, so the Docker community, contributes to the Puppet modules to make sure that they get success. Yeah, I mean, what are some of the other, you know, sort of go-to modules that you've had to touch in and, and you found good success with? Um, so I, I have a couple modules I maintain. One is a local user module because um, I have a home lab and I set up stuff and I don't have Active Directory or other LDAP systems. I just have a local user. So I push that around, which is great. Make sure that I have the same username and password and the SSH key is put down on the Linux nodes. Um, I use the Apache because nobody wants to keep up with all the changes in Apache on every minor version <laughs> yeah. on how to generate how to generate like your uh, your vhost configurations. I I used to know that stuff once upon a time, but by using the Apache module, you just say I want a vhost and here's the host name and the the admin's email address and the port and it handles all that for you. Um, there's there's so many little ones like that. Um, I use R10K, which is a puppet-oriented tool, but there's a module for that, which makes it real nice to help build the pipelines. Um, so I guess the next question comes up too is is language, right? A lot of the a lot of our admin folks they have a sort of an inherent fear that they have to become programmers to to do some of the stuff because they're looking like, oh, well, it's it's written in Ruby, you know, it uses YAML, and like I don't know what that means. And it, what do you say to a traditional sort of maybe a GUI-based administrator, someone who's coming from maybe a Microsoft camp or even a vSphere user who's not used to going into the CLI necessarily, what's, how do you sort of make it not scary for them? Like, how did you, you know, did you have to have a lot of programming type of background knowledge to, to get success with this stuff? Or what do you think? I think you have to have some. And I, I think one of the things 
I have an issue with, and I've had an issue with this for a long time, is like that that programmer or coder or developer moniker. Um, we tend to protect it. You know, we're not we're not engineers. We don't have to go pass an engineering exam to have a license from the state. So it, it's always a little weird to me because you hear you hear there's a difference between scripters and coders and programmers and developers. But if you're writing code, you're a programmer or a developer, depending on what you do. It's there's no there's no real delineation. So I would say that's the first thing is get over this mental hurdle that if you write a few lines of bash code for, for and somebody calls it a script that you're not a programmer. You already are. Um, so you know if, if you've got that, any background in any language where you've written even five lines of it, you're well on your way. And and try and get over that mental hurdle of of like having to to be better than something. Um, you know, hit some arbitrary mark to call yourself a programmer. Um, once you get past that, then you can take a look at whatever fits. You know, if you're a Windows person, you probably should be learning PowerShell. Um, there are plenty of other languages out there. Um, PowerShell builds off the CLR, which is where C Sharp and um, all the other uh, uh, VBNet, all the .NET languages yeah. uh, work with. So if you have if you start to get into that, there's like a ton of languages you can learn where they're all they're all going to work on Windows, and they've all got the same thing, and you can actually tie programs together. There's a lot of fun stuff you can do there. Um, C Sharp is kind of cool if you're more into the GUI because you can more easily build some GUI programs. I mean, even if you just build like a, I don't know a, a chessboard or a fellow or something like that um, for fun. You're you're kind of in that model that you know, and it's a good way to learn. And then things you learn can apply elsewhere. Um, if you're more into the Unix, uh, you certainly should know some Bash or shell scripting of of any sort. Um, Perl, everybody loves to hate on it, but <laughs> Perl is great. And if you need to know regexes at all, uh, Perl is a great place to learn. It's got great regex support. Uh, Ruby and Python are pretty hot. Um, JavaScript, I'm not big on, a, but a big thing. It, I the, it's another. Uh, I think it's an XPCD thing, or like you know, the classic quote of, you know, I had a problem and I'm going to use regex to solve it, and now I have two problems. Yeah, that was. Uh, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name. JWZ, uh, Jamie Zawinski from Netscape, I think, coined that one, which is a great one because as soon as you use regex, you do have two problems. But uh, but sometimes you have to. You know, but but all those languages are great, and I would say once you start to dive into it, you're probably going to get deep in one language, but learn a few. Even if all you do is know how to look at it, and like you have some bug in it, and you need it fixed, you know, I, I can I can do that with C code, but I would never write a C program. Right. But I think I'm comfortable enough that I can look at it and be like, oh, I think the bug's here. I think this is how you fix it. <laughs> and, and you know, if you get that familiarity in at least two languages, then you can really broaden out, kind of like speaking, you know, English and and uh, once you learn, you know, Italian, then French and Spanish are pretty close to it, so you have at least some familiarity with a few words, so same kind of thing. Learn, learn more than one programming language, um, get that familiarity and, and try and branch out. It, and, and it's not as scary once you get past the first one. And basic scripting is kind of like the the core stuff in in any verbal language too, right? Like I need to know how to where how to go to the bathroom. I need to know how to order something to eat, how to, something to drink, and you know how to get places. Once you do that's yep. 
that's the the basic scripting. How do I, you know, open a file? How do I write a file? How, like very simple things that you can do that, like you said, translate from language to language. And then once you touch two or three of them, or and, and just go through people's code, that's the most yeah. amazing thing, right? Well, now you have, like you said, GitHub. Before you had to find. You know, you had the floppies that came from the vendor, and you maybe had a few disks left over from the person before you, and you hoped that they might have something that you could follow. But now there's a ton of code out there you can find that does a million different things, and you're usually one or two Google searches away from something that does close to what you want that you can kind of crib from. And, you know, that's... That's the next piece I'm gonna gonna ask you about because we all started somewhere. We all, you know, had you know wh- whatever we're doing, every aspect of our technology life and personal life started somewhere. We had to we had to have no experience in something, and we got started. What's what's a good place for people to go to? You know, maybe if you want to talk about Puppet specifically or or anything like, how do you get started with learning? you know, puppet and learning automation and, and learning how to do this stuff. Cause it's as much a methodology as, uh, as a, any specific language you're going to pick. What, what are places that you would suggest newcomers to automation and who are just traditional sysadmins, wh- where do they start? I'll give the example from puppet and I'm sure that every community has something similar, but I know puppet well, so I'm going to speak to that. If you go to puppet, they have a site called learn.puppet.com and there's a learning VM. So now you can download a VM that has puppet installed. So you don't need to worry about that. And they actually make it pretty fun. I, I don't know that every community has this, but they have a quest system. You log in for the first time and it tells you, you need to do something and it gives you a little guide and then you go do it and you get points until you finish the quest. And then you get another one. So it kind of moves you like iteratively through through what you're doing. And and I did this when I started. I, got, I downloaded the learning VM so I didn't have to install Puppet. I just had a VM that had it. I learned to, like how to create a user, how to look at a user that already exists, all, all the very basic stuff. And then it builds up, doesn't get really complex, but gives you an idea, you know, if you're doing like a, uh, bake off between a number of products. It's certainly enough to to know whether or not this is a product you'd be leaning towards or not. And then I build a proof of concept at home, uh, set up a puppet server and a node, and then just played with that for a couple weeks. Uh, for me, I like to learn by doing things, and then I blog about it, and that's my way of kind of the uh, writing it down and having the the uh, repetition and the rote. So. I write about it, tell other people, uh, but it's really mostly for me, and then kind of just keep working on new things. And I got into um, managing a couple local applications that required uh, Apache. So I learned the Apache module. I learned how to set up the software that we were using, which I wasn't really worried about the software side, but I basically could build a brand new node from a minimal template that had nothing on it, add the Apache via and the software via Puppet, and 10 minutes later have a VM that was ready and serving the application. And to me, that was big because whenever you have the application change, you get cruft left behind. Or uh, there's a major version of the OS upgrade or the Apache gets upgraded. Now, instead of having to do the delta, like, oh, how do I go from 
where I'm at now to putting the new stuff on and I've got this file left behind and it's causing a problem, I was at the point where I could just build a brand new one and then I could test with it and then if it worked, bring that into production. Nice. And I think you've you've nailed a really good uh, thing there, use case-based learning, right? If we don't, uh, it's like task-based learning, something where you've you've built, you talked about before with like Chest, Othello, if you want to build a GUI, like pick something that you know and and then use that as your use case to automate it or to script it or to program towards it. And and I think that's the big thing. Like, because I if you if I go out there and I say I want to learn Go, you know, as a as a language, I'm going to hit the wall real fast <laughs> because it's yep. just gonna it's gonna come at it with an assumption of like, well, here's how you use you know declarative language. Like, I'm like I'm lost. It's like explaining credit you know derivatives to people. But yeah. if you take a use case, say, well, here's an example. Here's the code that services this example now you can kind of like cut and paste a little bit yeah and and i'm a cut and paste scripter i i've i reuse a ton of old stuff i refactor other people's things and it's it's great because it saves you a ton of time there's no need to continuously you know build from ground up and there's tons of folks in our community who are awesome at that and i'm super proud that they're awesome at that because i'm going to cut and paste their code they do all they do all the work for us right yeah. So if you if you had to, you know, pick a, a what was like kind of the first task that you did? Let's go like way back in history. You know, here's Rob. Here's you oh. know, you know, it's level two support Rob, right? What was the first thing you scripted that you said? Way okay, back. that made it super easy. <laughs> um, probably going back to uh, working on some SCO open server boxes. Uh, this was. 99, 2000, and um, used a combination of Bash and I think some Perl. This was way back when, so it may not have been, but used very, very simple scripts that I wrote to uh, monitor for disk space because there was no great monitoring system back then that was free. Um, and I think monitored for for a few different resources that were important to whatever application we were running at the time, you know, number of files open, something like that. Yeah. And how did email somebody when they hit what was a high level, but not customer impacting. So we'd get that note with enough time to go and do the manual things. So it was still not really automating, fixing the problem, but it at least was automating, letting us know. So we had the time. And then I think my second step was probably finding a few of those, of those things if you know the drive gets full maybe purge a few old log files and then if it was still full then it sends an email nice things like that and and you know now you would you even think twice if you hit it at any type of task like that it's do you feel like it's first step is is automated right like that that's my thought is i i the first thing i think of is if i'm going to do this more than twice I, I need to script it. I need to create some kind of a workflow or at least start working towards it. Is is do you do you become that that's like like talk about we talk about virtualization first and cloud first and like are you automate first? Yeah, pretty much. I, I try and do a quick calculation. Um even if I'm doing it for the second time, I try and do a quick calculation and figure out if is this really something I'm gonna do all the time or not. 
because there are times where you know you get called in for something maybe you're being asked to help by another group and you just kind of give them the information they can figure out if they do it or you hit some issue that's maybe related to hardware failure so you're hopefully not going to hit that again but unless it's one of those things where you'd have to you know automate it in 10 seconds to pay off yeah I pretty much go down that road and the other reason is if I'm going to even if it is something that's maybe not an automated process you can you can automate the recovery or even diagnosis sometimes you know um, oh if the if the memory is full which you do by running this command and then you pipe it to this command and then you take a look at the output yeah that's confusing for brand new people so sometimes I just make a little script that you run that runs those five commands and spits it out to the screen and the good thing now is I think there's a there's a lot more systems that that can render that and now we can even like use API calls you know restful queries against stuff and it takes it that it's that next evolution where once they're comfortable you know we used to do that system level type of query now you can you know instead of going at the hardware now you can go at software which is getting this information I saw like this cool little thing yesterday. It's like, you know, gathering IP information for your, you know, externally facing IP. It was just simply like curl-s ipinfo.io. Like, and it spits out a JSON result. I'm like, this is awesome. It's the simplest little thing, but I'm like, I actually have a few places I could use this where I was doing these weird gnarly steps to gather IP information. I'm like, there's, there's new tools that you could kind of maybe deploy that tool and then query it, and it becomes the sort of that abstraction layer that now you can interact with the abstraction, and you're no longer having to go down to the system level, and it kind of elevates the way that we work as as technologists. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes even the the simplest way to automate that is that that sounds pretty simple, but that curl command is probably still like a hundred hundred characters or more, and it's very easy to mistype. So sometimes the the easiest automation is making that an alias or making it a script that, you know, like one or two letters long where you type like, you know, dot slash IP report and it runs all the curl commands for you instead of typing them in and getting, uh, you know, transposing two characters at the end and wondering why it doesn't work. Nice. This is why we're friends, Rob, because you and I are fundamentally lazy and we know we're going to make mistakes. I love it. <laughs> yes. I, um, uh, Mr. Snover of PowerShell fame likes to say, I am a deeply flawed human being. And, and he's right. We're all deeply flawed. We all make mistakes all the time, whether we want to admit it or not. So yeah, it's, it's good to acknowledge it and act on it. Yeah. And, you know, if we take a systems thinking approach and you, you move that stuff into a system, not only does it, you know, it's consistent, right? And it also means that other folks can take over instead of you hacking out that task on a daily basis or an hourly basis or even a weekly or monthly basis. It's you've got someone else can just pick it up. And, you know, we're not we're not necessarily going to work at the place we're working today for the rest of our lives because we're still young. Uh, a lot of stuff changes. And, you know, it's nice when we can share those tasks and share those processes uh, w with other folks and you know, doing it through a 22-page instruction set or doing it through, yeah, here's a, a, a puppet manifest. This is how we deploy the new systems. You want to make it better? Have at it. Even better when it's in GitHub, right? Make it collaborative. Uh, and I'm going to touch on that last. 
you know, GitHub is a is a great place to to go to gather information. It's also, like you said, with blogging and these type of things, when you publish information yourself, I find it makes me learn better because I the first thing I think is I don't want someone to go, huh, you did it wrong. Yeah, I I'm kind of keen to make sure that it looks good and it forces me to, you know, and I'm also not afraid to just put it out there. You know, how did you kind of you know, when you think about publishing something to GitHub, what's the or a blog? What what is it that makes you think, all right, I think I'm ready to share this? So when I write the blog, if I'm doing um if it's free form, like prose, basically it's really just normal writing stuff. You know, you do a draft, you review it. For me, sometimes if it's really long, I even print it out and get out with a red pen and I read it until, you know, I think I'm my own editor in this case, but you know, if the editor passes it, then I usually put it out. If it's going to be controversial, maybe I hit up a friend on Twitter and say, hey, can you review a draft for me? If it's technical for my blog, uh, especially the puppet stuff, what I was doing was I'd stand up one node and I'd do something and I'd document it in a form of a blog post and then I'd stand up another node and I'd read my own blog post back and if anything was wrong, I fixed it. And then once I got to the point where I could go top to bottom with the instructions I made, then I hit publish. Nice. Um, when, you, when you get into the code stuff, um, and this can sometimes tie back to a blog if you're including like even just a snippet of code, um, I kind of do the same thing. I try and run it myself. Um, unit tests are huge. If you're doing like a, a little snippet, you may not have unit tests, but if you're writing a program, you should have some sort of unit test. And uh, for those who don't know, a unit test is where you basically go down to the smallest bit that you can. You have a line that, say, creates a file. So you have a unit test that sees if that function creates a file. And then if you have something that edits the file, you have another test that sees if that file changes the way you expect. Little things like little tests so you know where the problem is as opposed to, hey, I've got... 300 lines and I know that something broke, but I don't know what, you know, break things down to really small. Once you get into that process of unit test, you have a lot of confidence in what you put out there. But uh, just like the getting over the being called a scripter versus a programmer, um, you kind of just have to have that mentality that you don't care to get started because the first thing, let's be honest, the first things we publish, uh, like past Rob Nelson was a horrible programmer. <laughs> um, horrible, horrible, horrible. And tomorrow I will say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So if you you got to have that mentality and just be okay with it to some extent. Um, you know, and and if you're doing anything that you use at work, make sure you're you know understand what the consequences are, what guidelines you have to be under. But um, I find a lot of times uh, writing stuff in my spare time and then publishing it makes it really easy for for me to also get advice for from other people like you said you might be doing it wrong or you right. might be doing let's let's not say wrong you might not be doing it the best way right and as soon as you put that out there if it's something that's interesting to more than you you'll probably have somebody come back and say hey i found a better way to do it or why didn't you do it this way and then you have the dialogue to to find out which which way might be better yeah, as much as we like to all think we're we're our own individual snowflake, whatever problem you're having right now is probably being had by somebody else. It's probably being solved by someone else, or it's 
and it's currently being had by many people, right? Let's it's that's what's great about the community aspect yeah. of everything. We can we can put it out there, and someone says, "Oh wow, I totally just had this issue," uh, and thank you for helping me solve it. Or hey, I had it. Here's another way that I was also able to solve this problem, and then it lets you kind of build something. I did a a power CLI script to shut down an entire virtual data center because I had to do that as part of my you know my role. We had to shut down a primary data center and it was a nested virtualized vCenter environments. I was like a nested vCenter hipster. So I would like everybody's like, no, it's got to be its own machine. I'm like, no, no, I want to run nested. And they said one of the problems is how do you shut down your your data center? Like, oh, good call. And it just ran on the vCenter, looked for what host it was on, enumerated all the hosts, set aside the host it was running on, shut everything else down except for that one, shut down every machine except itself, and then just forcibly powered down the host. So it was basically going down with the ship. And when I did that, I was like, this is a really <laughs> a great way to describe that. It was a really gnarly process I had to do to build this script. But then as I built it, I started to think like I need to share this. So I started to code it a little differently because I wanted to share it. And then when I published it, you know, a couple of other friends, you know, Mike Preston, uh, who uh, is also a you know, big power CLI guy, you know, he he's bought this. He's like, hey, I've got something that's kind of like this. And so I'm going to take this. And he like added some things, cleaned up some code and. And then I use that now. And like we literally parried back and forth of, with this thing. And now it's become like a, a more shareable, you know, safe script. And it's it's cool that we can do that. So yeah, Rob, now whenever I log into my uh, vCenter, I'm going to have to say, oh, captain, my captain before I log in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, I, I, we're going to close out. This has been really awesome. You know, Rob, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the stuff you've done. And um I'm proud to, to be a part of the community you're in and, and thank you for, for all the stuff that you share. It's, it's very cool through the stuff we did with virtual thank design you. master that we got introduced and, you know, I want to be able to connect at a VMUG, uh, you know, so tell us, you know, again, let's sort of rehash where, where do people find you uh, and, and, and if they want to reach out through social media and such, and, and, and maybe what's an upcoming event that we may, uh, we may find Rob Nelson at. Uh, so Twitter, Arnelson0, uh, same thing with GitHub and a number of other places. And my blog is arnelson0.com. If you're in the Puppet community, uh, I'm a contributor to Vox Populi, which was previously called Puppet Community. It's just an organization of, of um, basically some module authors and tool authors writing some, some hopefully common, commonly helpful uh, modules for people. Um, as far as events, I don't have anything on the near horizon, but this summer um, I will be at the NDV Mug UserCon, and I hope to see yourself and and plenty of other people there. Nice, and uh, and also got a shout out. Uh, I was really really proud to see you uh, presenting at the Puppet Conf, uh, and I imagine that was a, an interesting experience. And and I'm gonna bring you back on in the future. We're gonna talk about presenting and, and what it takes to kind of to do that because the public speaking presenting piece is a separate aspect altogether and and i i watched your progression as you prepared for that and, and went through it so i'd love to 
you know, we could do another half hour just on that. So we're going to do that again, hopefully in the future. Um, so, but again, sure. you know, congratulations on getting that, getting the nod to get picked up there. And, and that's, that's the kind of cool stuff that we see and, and it's fun to be a part of, of the community and watch it all happen. So with that again, yeah, so, thank you. That was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, we're going to close out for today. So again, thank you very much, Rob Nelson. Uh, my name is Eric Wright. I'm at Disco Posse. Uh, on Twitter, I'm Disco Posse in the Green Circle community. Uh, don't forget, you can just log in. Uh, it's greencircle.vmturbo.com. Uh, fully open community. It's free. Free as in kittens, beer, whatever it is. Totally free. Uh, so anyways, come in. Uh, continue the conversation. We're going to post the show notes in there. We're going to, you know, pick out some of the resources Rob talked about, uh, as well as, you know, uh, shareable links on, on where to reach Rob. And, uh, you know, we look forward to, to another opportunity in the future. So thanks again, Rob, and thanks everybody for listening. You're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast.